You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Sectarian Review Podcast, a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We discuss culture, history, art, politics, and religion in order to better understand the systems and institutions that cloud our vision of this life. Keep up with the conversation and add to it by liking our Facebook page, following us on Twitter, and visiting our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to leave a nice rating and review at iTunes. And if you ever get the urge to join in for an episode or two, contact us with your ideas. Listeners make the best contributors. Now for the show. Hello everybody, Danny Anderson here. You might know by now that I'm an assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College. One thing I am not, however, is very studied in Shakespeare. So today's show is probably more for me than for you, which um, I guess is they all are, my really. Uh, but uh, joining me today is Josh Cohen, who's an old friend of mine from college. And Josh also happens to be a librarian at Elizabethtown College, also in Pennsylvania, where he just hosted a touring copy of uh, Shakespeare's first folio, courtesy of the Folger Shakespeare Library. Uh, and Josh happened to be the project manager for the event. So I went to see the exhibit on its last day, and I talked to Josh into coming on the show to talk about it. I found it to be a fascinating experience, and one of the things that struck me was the intersection between entrepreneurship and high culture. But we'll get to that in a bit. Josh, how in the heck are you? I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Okay. I have to say, um, I don't believe I've interviewed anybody who was wearing pajamas at the time. Uh, you, I'm not wearing pajamas. Actually, actually, you know what? You're not the first person to mistake my shirt for a pajama top. My, my niece, who's five, also thought it was a pajama top. It's actually a Ben Folds 5 t-shirt. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know. Is that better? I don't know. I, people love yeah, Ben Folds. I, so know. I don't know if that's better, but it, it has a pajama-ish look to it. It's true. Not a problem. Um, Not a problem. I appreciate that, actually. So <laughs> It's very old. I, I've owned it since I was in high school. So it's it's a shirt that probably is is has has you know is a little bit past its due date um, <laughs> and maybe should be only worn as a going to bed kind of shirt well, you know i.e. pajamas right so, um... I, pajamas, <laughs> so well, I should just I just should have just played along with the pajama top that's well, Josh, uh, I know you uh, from way back when at Kent State, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do now at Elizabethtown? Yes, I, uh, I am the Instruction and Outreach Librarian at Elizabethtown College. Uh, it's in Central PA. Um, I am, you want me to talk about what I what I do there? Yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, so um, my, my role is, I, I do a lot of things that uh, a typical librarian does, like doing reference uh, work and working with individual students, but I, a big component of my uh, job is uh, teaching research instruction, um, and uh, I'm also in charge of programming, and that's what intersected with, I think, this this particular project was a, was a uh, program. Uh, most of my programming is, is just aimed at Elizabethtown College students. Uh, this was aimed uh, not just at the college campus, but the, the whole state, um, and um, we had people from out of state coming in too, but primarily in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, so, so this was a little, un, this is not typical of a, of a kind of project 
uh, I work on. So it was a very sort of special uh, opportunity for me. And um, I, as, as, as you know, I'm a former English major. That was how we uh, met at Kent. And, um, and I was uh, actually, while I was at Kent, I became uh, a big Shakespeare uh, nerd some extent. I wasn't really in high school, even though we read, you know, Shakespeare in high school, but it wasn't until I was at, uh, I read him and I'd been reading a lot of poetry, uh, and at the time. And, uh, so, so I got the, uh, the genius of Shakespeare, uh, in a way that I had not before. Um, so it was a great privilege to be able to, to work on a project like this. Um, and uh, it's something I had never worked on anything like it before. I, I have no experience with uh, museums. I, I, I had it's, it's not true. I had some experience with museums, but as a like as a tour guide in a museum, but never as in a curatorial kind of capacity. Um, I'd done project management and uh, working on different programming, obviously. Um, but this was uh, this was you know a national tour, so this was this. Was, a different beast, you know, a new league here. So, um, yes, well, let's talk some background and logistics first. Um, tell us a little bit sure. about the folio, the tour and how your school ended up with it. So what the folio is. Yeah. Is that just telling us what the folio is? Okay. Yeah. So the first folio, uh, is a book of plays. Uh, the actual title of it is William Shakespeare's uh, comedies, histories, and tragedies. Um, I'm not sure if it's in that exact order, but uh, uh, all of his plays, none of it, it did not contain poems. It was, uh, you could think of it as the first uh, collected plays published of William Shakespeare, published in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died. Uh, up until that point, uh, you had some of his plays had been published in individual cheap kind of pamphlets. Um, but they'd never been published as a formal book meant to be sat down and read uh, as, as reading material. Uh, prior to that, individual plays were published, but they were published for you know, actors to learn their parts, and it was not it was something that would sort of be disposable. Um, it was not, you know, quote-unquote, literature. Um, and some of the plays had never been published at all. They'd been performed, but they'd never actually been formally published. Um, and about, that would be about half of them. So, and some of those we might not have today if it weren't for this, this book. Yes. Yeah. So we, we, we probably wouldn't have them, uh, if, and, uh, you know, and some of those are like Macbeth and the Tempest and, uh, Taming of the Shrew, some big, big plays, uh, uh, Julius Caesar. Mm. Um, so some of my, yeah, some of my favorites, uh, Macbeth and, and the Tempest are two of my favorites and, uh, those might've been lost since they hadn't been published. It's also because it was produced, so it was produced by two actors who were in Shakespeare's uh, theater company. So these were men that had worked with him and knew him or colleagues of his. And uh, when they were trying to put this together, uh, they did not have, there was no, there were no uh, existing manuscripts in Shakespeare's hand, um, but they had a certain, some certain amount of authority as um, people that knew him and worked with him had done these plays uh, and uh, in his company. And so they had a certain authority to say in, and they said it in when they were trying to sell the book in the actual book that this was the authoritative version. And of course, it's not entirely because it wasn't uh, literally taken from Shakespeare's manuscript, um, but it's the closest we have to essentially Shakespeare's man, and it's and it essentially forms the basis of the versions of the plays 
that we now read yeah. and when we read the collected works of, of William Shakespeare, as, as far as the plays go. Now, the poems have been published. Shakespeare had made no effort during his lifetime to publish the plays because he had, you know, and the culture at large viewed plays as um, performed art and not as literature, as something to be read. Um, and he viewed his poetry as something to be read. So it's sort of interesting to me how that changes. Uh, you know, it's something that I was thinking about, particularly when Bob Dylan won the right. Nobel Prize for Literature. Right. Um, because uh, I don't know that, that, you know, Dylan's lyrics have made the leap from performance to page in the same way that Shakespeare's, when the, you know, when the first folio was published, um, these books were expensive. They were, you know, this is, uh, you know, a 900, uh, around 900 pages. It was big. Um, it, it took a long time to produce and people were, uh, buying this to read these things. And I don't know that people, I mean, you can buy Dylan's lyrics, uh, and sit down and read them, but I don't think most people ex experience his, uh, lyrics that way in a, in a form as quote literature where it's primarily being, or, or maybe not even primarily. If, if, if like it's not, even, I don't think even half of the people that consume Dylan's work consume it as readers. Hmm. Uh, uh, so, so to give him the, the Nobel Prize in literature is premature. I mean, I've seen Dylan lyrics published in anthologies of, of poems. Sure, that's what I was going to say. Uh, but, but individual poems, and I, I you know, it's not like. <laughs> I, it, they might very well make that transition. They might make that leap into being literature and being things that are read uh, and valued just as much as the recordings that he made of the songs. Um, but what, I don't think it, it's kind of premature. One thing I challenge you a little bit is, I mean, uh, oh gosh, who was it that um, playwrights have won the Nobel Prize for literature? Uh, and there's right. a recent one, the British, I can't remember the name right now. Uh Oh geez. Um, anyway, uh, playwrights. This is not uh, unheard of. Stopper? Did Tom Stopper? No. Oh gosh, I, I can't remember who it is. Uh, I'll, I'll figure it out, and maybe I'll put it in the show notes for those audiences. This happens every once in a while on the show. I'll try to something will come to me, and I can't produce a name, and I embarrass myself and show how ignorant I am. That's why you need to have Google at the ready. <laughs> well, I should. I should have my computer on. You're right, but uh, but anyway, <laughs> playwrights have won uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature, and those are primarily not to be read. Also, we do read them, but they are performance based pieces of literature as well and so that's how i kind of justified dylan's uh winning uh for songwriting as uh, uh, i mean some poetry is meant to be sung and, and and i think that that's sort of a way to justify it. i i would sort of take exception with it i was just happy that i knew i'd heard of the person who won the nobel prize for literature for once uh or for not for yeah, once yeah. but for you know it hasn't happened enough lately so um so uh maybe i'm jumping through hoops to defend dylan's <laughs> well i you know here. i don't i don't think it's i mean you know i had mixed feelings about it when i first heard about it i was like yay dylan and then I, I heard people talking about it, making different arguments. And then when I was working on this exhibit, I was thinking about not in terms of my personal feelings about Dylan's work, because I love Bob Dylan's uh, songs, but um, more in just sort of like, what is literature? And is literature something that is read? Um, and uh, or, or or is it just any, you know, is it any clever use of words? <laughs> you know, artful use of words makes it literature. And I mean, there's obviously a point where 
you know, Homer was performed and it wasn't considered a, it wasn't read, it wasn't a literary form. And then it made that transition. Um, and you were talking about plays, you know, there, there was a time when plays would not be considered literature. People just, they didn't read them. Um, and that time has since passed. And I, I think you can maybe mark the publication of the first folio as where that, that transition maybe, you know, takes place. Uh, and, uh, in the culture and, and, yeah, we're um, back on target yeah. then. That's good. Yeah. One of the one of the issues with interviewing a friend is we get into these little tangents. But let's try <laughs> let's try and stick on uh, on the subject. Yeah, line. you'll have to you'll have to like bring it back then. You'll have to like uh... the tour. Uh, let's talk about the tour. Yes. Um, sure, like sure. the Folger. This was in uh, com- uh, commemoration of an anniversary of Shakespeare. So that that was what prompted this. Yes, it's uh, this past year, 2016, was uh, marked 400 years since Shakespeare died. Um, so there were a lot of different uh, things going on uh, to celebrate that. And the Folger Shakespeare Library uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, decided to celebrate it uh, in a number of ways. They had programming uh, of different kinds and exhibits of different kinds throughout the year. But their most ambitious was this tour. Uh, they have 82 uh, first folios, the largest collection of first folios in any institution in the world. Um, and they decided for the 400th, they were going to send uh, 17 of their folios, uh, which are, uh, you know, uh, in a, in a uh, what's the word? I'm trying to think of it, they, where they keep the... Uh, um, in storage? In a vault. Yeah, in like a vault. Um, and they, they always have one on display. Um, but, you know, un- unless somebody is a scholar is looking at them, they're in a vault. Um, so they would take 17 of these out and send them uh, to one location in each state uh, of the United States, uh, including uh, Puerto Rico and a location in D.C., even though the, the, the Folger itself is in D.C. But they, they had uh, one in D.C. as well. So um, so they, that means, you know, sending it to Hawaii, uh, Puerto Rico is, is kind of, you know, those kind of ambitious places for them to, 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 uh, transport these, these books, um, and, uh, which are very valuable. I mean, you know, the most, uh, one of the most, uh, valuable books, uh, in, in existence, uh, just cause it's such a, such an important book to Western culture. Um, and, uh, you know, a, the foundation of, I mean, you know, that and the Bible, you know, are sort of these yeah. foundational uh, texts in English. Um, so, um, yeah, so it was an ambitious project, and, um, and yeah, so, we, you know, we were lucky to be chosen as the, uh, the location for, for Pennsylvania. Uh, we felt it was a great privilege to be a part of. It was, it was, it was wonderful working uh, with the folks at the Folger Shakespeare Library. They they certainly helped uh, enormously with, you know, everything from uh, prep to setting up to uh, what they had in mind in terms of programs. You know, uh, uh, they, you know, they, they provided us with enormous amount of material. They provided us with, you know, directional signs, you know, <laughs> that we could print, like a PDF. They sent it to us. I saw I had PDFs of arrow signs, you know, with the Shakespeare logo. <laughs> Um, so that was, yeah, so they, they provided us with a lot of stuff. We had our, our marketing team at, at the college, um, 
and uh, they had plenty of stuff to work with, you know, making marketing materials and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, working with the Folger was uh, was was really uh, was really fun, and um, they certainly helped a, a lot, you know. One of the th- I know that you had to sort of make a case for what you would do with it, and we'll get to that yes. later. Um, one of the uh, I I want to spend some time talking about the various events that you put on as a as an institution around this text, um, and but that was one of the things you had to sort of um, prove that you would do uh, in order to uh, right. win the the honor. So let's zoom back out a little bit now. Um, quite a bit out back to the origins of the Folger collection. What led Folger? Uh, to collect these artifacts before the library. I mean, this was like a, the library was a, an outcome of his collecting habit. Um, uh, what led him to collect these artifacts and how did that impulse grow into the institution that we now have in, in DC? Well, it was, it was really a, a product of not just uh, Henry Folger's interest in Shakespeare, but uh, both he and his wife. Uh, so H- Henry Folger's wife was Emily and uh, they met, in college, and I believe, I hope that's right, I think, I think they met in college, um, and they were both obsessed with Shakespeare. Um, he, I think, was an English undergraduate major. Uh, she also got a master's in English, um, did her thesis on Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare-related topic. Um, so before, he, you know, he, he eventually became a businessman, and he was, you know, um, um, uh, very successful as a executive with Standard Oil Company, uh, of an oil behemoth, and he worked for, uh, you know, uh, Rockefeller, I believe, and so he was, uh, you know, uh, a uh, uh, eventually a corporate guy, but he uh, had a liberal arts education uh, and uh, developed that. That was how he developed his love of Shakespeare. And he was kind of obsessed with it. Both him and his wife uh, were, were obsessed. They didn't have children. And uh, it seemed like they spent an enormous amount of their disposable income uh, on collecting and, and you know, uh, Shakespeare uh, manuscripts, artifacts, or rare books in general. And, you know, uh, but, I mean, their main focus was Shakespeare. Well, and, and so, yeah, and this is, I guess, a good segue into my next question. Um, it's striking to me that rich industrialists would even be drawn to something like Shakespeare in the first place. I, I mean, maybe I'm painting with unfair, unfairly broad brushstrokes here. That just seems so alien to the CEO personality type that we all have to put up with today, right? Uh, yeah, did yeah you- but I mean, also, you know, I don't know. It seemed like, and I, I could be totally wrong here. I'm not an expert on this, but... Um, yeah, you know, I I don't know if they're, you know, during the time that uh, he was being educated and his wife was educated, um, you know, they did have a liberal arts background, um, and I think that, you know, obviously influences you and uh, how you view the world and how you view yourself, and um, and even though he eventually went into business, and I think he got a law degree after his undergrad, um, but his his undergrad was it was in English literature, so uh, those kinds of things have that you know that that kind of education influences your life, and uh, you know we're sort of moving away from that with with folks uh, tending to be very very concerned about uh, money and their their uh, their ability to find employment after they you know graduate, and uh, which is not you know which is not a 
an unreasonable concern, but um, you know, if somebody's going to go in business now, they major in business. You know, there's there's no uh, so so it's uh, so that might be part of the reason why you don't have more business business people that uh, you know if they're if they're you know enormously wealthy and they're going to invest in something. Uh, you know, it's 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 unlikely to be something in the humanities or something in the liberal arts area because it's not. You know, you sort of gravitate to whatever your background is and whatever your passion is. And if your if your education is only in business, um, then you're probably your interest outside of your own business is going to be maybe related to that more more likely than than not. You know. Um, yeah, I I think what you're We're getting at is it's shapeless. So I mean, so it isn't just that he happened to be exposed to English uh, literature in college and therefore developed a love of it. He went into college already sort of open to that idea. I mean, he majored in that before he loved Shakespeare, right? And so there is sort of you're talking about a different kind of institutional structure, and I'm not talking about higher the institution of higher education necessarily. But the um, all of the institutions that intersect in the institution of higher education and the culture in general. Yeah. You know, I mean, like families, you know, every family, you know, if they if they own books in their house, they had, you know, Shakespeare and they had the Bible and um, they, you know, there was there was a valuing of that that uh, I don't I don't know how much that exists anymore. I, mean, I know I didn't grow up with with Shakespeare and in, in, in my family, I mean, my, you know, my my parents read my, you know, my parents read, but they didn't. Uh, hmm. it wasn't that was that wasn't it wasn't like there was this. I mean, my parents hate Shakespeare. <laughs> well, <laughs> they this... hate the exhibit. Shakespeare fan. Well, this is interesting to me personally. I guess so. Uh, there was a time we can. I mean, maybe we'll just sort of draw broad, unfair conclusions about Folger's life here. Um, <laughs> from Folger's life, there's a there's a time. Let's say when to be interested in and be conversant in high culture like Shakespeare is a sign of kind of social capital uh, and therefore uh, there's something th that uh, money-making wealthy industrialist types are sort of drawn to that because it adds to the uh, the persona uh, per se uh, maybe and now so I grew up my, I'm a you know the son of hillbillies in West Virginia and I mean I grew up in Cleveland but my parents were always very concerned that we had books in the house and I'm wondering if it's not a similar uh, impulse. My parents spent, I don't know how much, it was probably way too much money back in the day when they did this, when this, when they still had encyclopedia salesmen. Uh, mm -hmm. Someone came by and sold us a whole set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I have no idea how they, why they decided to invest in that, but uh, that was in our house, and I, I literally read the encyclopedia every day. I mean, I, I enjoyed doing that. And so, um, I, and I think for my parents, if I have to guess, and they've told me things along these lines, that there's something about um, being conversant in in books and, and reading books that does have sort of a um, uh, an ethical effect on you and it makes you a better person. It's almost like poor people from later in the century are adopting the view that rich people had by that point let go of. <laughs> and they had sort of let go of the idea of, of high culture and uh, uh, as actually... Uh, personally growing uh i don't know am i, I, I you have a totally I different background I, I didn't know that i don't know too much about henry folger personally i mean i know that 
when he was asked by Rockefeller if he had paid uh, some exorbitant sum for a particular folio book, he denied it, even though he had. Yeah, um, I remember that. There was a video. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a video about him. And, uh, that that sort of struck me uh, in the video. That um, so I, I don't I don't necessarily mm. think it was a typical. I, you know, so it might have been more typical for industrialists in the time to. I mean, you have somebody like Carnegie, for instance, um, building all these libraries and, and really valuing uh, public access to information and education. And um, and so, I mean, I, you know, it might have been viewed weird that Folger was so obsessed with these books and willing to spend so much money on these books by other industrialists like, uh, like Rockefeller. But hmm. I don't know that that necessarily means that uh, – uh, what you were saying before, you know, isn't that there's some truth into that. Um, uh, I was probably making too, which is too bad. My idea doesn't seem to hold water. I think you're right. I think, I think that maybe I was making too big a deal about that. But, I mean, those guys did also, you're talking about Carnegie, they also built big performance halls and, and things like that. They did provide a space for high culture to exist, right? And that's ultimately what the Folger Library became, which was built in his lifetime, right? I mean, they built the Folger Library. It was no, it was it was built in his wife's lifetime. He oh, okay. died um before it got built, but I uh, you know, she made sure you know that it was um uh, I mean, she was in the, the his wife who was also a big part of the collecting. Mm-hmm. Um yeah helped to organize the library and she was alive when it was, when it was starting to be built. Um, so, um, is this the coffee guy? Uh, no, I think he's related. (laughs) I think he had an uncle. So he was not, this was not a guy who came from nothing kind of, you know, I think he had, uh, he he was, he was definitely, I think from a well-established family, but he, uh, it was his uncle, I believe, who was the, the Folger who, uh, became built his fortune in coffee. Um, Freeze dried crystals, right? So, yes. Yeah, that, the good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if the, if if this if if you know uh, he hadn't done made it in Standard Oil, he probably could have always gone over for his uncle, right? Yeah. Done okay. I don't think he would have been. Uh, I guess it's tough for me because the, as much as the working class person in me resents people of this type, uh, without their philanthropy, without Carnegie building those performance halls without Folger collecting these things. Um, I mean, they they did keep high culture uh, alive. They did sort of house it for us, Just even if it were for if it was for sort of uh, personal pride or whatever, uh, in order to have their name on famous buildings or what, what whatever the reason being. Um, that activity of kind of collecting and privatizing high culture does in a way those institutions that they create they do uh keep those um things in accessible in our culture to a degree right i mean they might be i don't i don't think i mean there are there are certainly rich people that don't uh you know that i could think of one in particular uh who likes to see his name uh on building <laughs> um i won't mention it you know i i uh, but, gold, uh, gold phallic buildings. Gold plated, that yeah, clearly and, uh, a, a, doesn't 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 have his name on things that are public works that are there for for the general public. Because it's just there for his own compensation. Uh, and yeah, and I mean, you know, if all Carnegie wanted was an ego trip, you know, he, right. he could have had it without actually giving back to the communities. And I think I think there was a 
uh, a belief uh, in give, giving back and 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 in, uh, in 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 community that you don't see. I don't think as much. I mean, you've got people like Bill Gates who um, who gives an enormous amount, you know, to to uh, philanthropy and uh, trying to help uh, help other people and use his his enormous, you know, uh, exorbitant wealth to to help other people. Um, but I don't know that that's that seems to me like you know there, there's 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 a lot who, who don't and uh, well I'm and, I'm trying to push back against my own kind of impulses right and and, and right. to recognize that thanks to people who you know profited from industrial capitalism early industrial capitalism and made massive amounts of money um, many of those people make the cultural institutions that we all sort of take for granted and cherish today possible, right? And so um, I think that um, Folger's example is a good one, is what I'm trying to get at. I'm hoping I'm not, I, yeah. I, I, I'm hoping I'm clear that I think what Folger did in his sort of, the, springing from his own kind of passion for this particular writer, this particular artist, um, and for whatever megalomaniac kind of reason for collecting 82 editions of the first folio, why you would want to do that? Right. I don't know. But um, uh, because he did that, though, he did salvage. It was kind of an obsession, right? It was. Yeah, it was kind of an obsession, so yeah. And he used those resources to salvage something that um, now lives on because of those institutions, right? Um, because of those, well, I mean, those they structures. Picked, they didn't live in D.C., you know, they lived in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided when they were trying to decide where they wanted the this library they were going to create to be, uh, they purposely put it in D.C. They purposely put it, uh, you know, about a block from the Capitol building, or a couple blocks from the Capitol building, because they wanted it to be. They they thought, well, this is, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, they they viewed Shakespeare as this pillar of Western culture, um, and they wanted. Uh, it to be in the nation's capital and in a place where, uh, you know, the public would have access to it and, uh, and it, you know, it to be in a, in a space, I guess, you know, I mean, they could have put it in New York, the, the, the sort of capital of, uh, capitalism sort yeah. of, you know. and culture and, and, and a lot of, yeah, a lot of culture too. Yeah. Um, but they put it in DC, uh, which is sort of interesting. Um, you know, where there's, you know, uh, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting choice. There's a democratic um, impulse at play there, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that um, that's a, a pretty good um, segue also into uh, my next question. Uh, if that original collecting project, and I'm not going to psychoanalyze somebody who's been dead for so long, but uh, but if that was about privatizing these texts and sort of owning it for whatever kind of psychological need he had, uh, the Folger Library's current project is about democratizing them, right? Um, and so that was part of the rationale that Elizabethtown had to make in order to receive this text for this tour. For Was it five, six weeks you had it? Uh, four or five weeks? Um um, we had it for four weeks. Yeah. So, uh, what kind of public activities uh, did your school put on to encourage a public engagement with this priceless piece of culture and history? Um, and maybe we could even get into some discussion about what Shakespeare has to offer us today. But uh, what did you guys do? Um, we had uh, different kinds of programs uh, targeting different audiences. We had lectures, um, and uh, we had. Uh, Primary the lectures primarily had to do more with the, more text focused, 
Um, I, I was sort of weighing whether to have lecturers who were talking more like we were talking about the about the Folgers and their history. Um, and I thought, well, I, you know, people might be interested in that. I, I, I sort of lean more towards uh, Shakespeare and the text than the Folger and their history of, you know, of, of the building of the collection. Um, uh, although we did have some of that in the in some of the side exhibits uh, that are in the one side exhibit that had the, the video gave you some back more right. filled some of the gaps in the exhibit itself. Um, so we we had um, programming that was targeted at families and, and kids, um, and uh, it was there were a lot of opportunities for our students to get involved, which was very important to me. Um, and our, we had education students that worked with a children's librarian at a library in Elizabethtown. Uh, Elizabethtown Public Library, and they put together these programs. They were using, they were building off of materials provided by the Folger. Uh, so the Folger actually developed uh, all these different materials for us to use uh, for different things, uh, including uh, programs for kids designed specifically to engage kids uh, and and give help kids uh, appreciate the language of it. So mm -hmm. it wasn't just doing like a craft. It was it was, you know, or, or having a story time, you know, I think they did that too, but uh, there were also language-related exercises. Um, and I even did some of them with, with some of the kids. We had, like, some larger groups that came to the exhibit, so we had to split them up, you know, because uh, everybody couldn't go into the exhibit at once. And so um, I did one of these language activities with some middle school kids, and they loved it. I mean, they, they got such a kick out of it. Um, there was one activity where they were, uh, they were acting out death scenes of characters, <laughs> nice. and they loved this. Our, our, our library director Sarah was was doing that activity with a group, and it was like they just they just they just loved it, and it really helped them connect with it. And so, you know, the Folger has an education wing that helped develop this. Um, so, so yeah, so their education wing developed it, and and it was uh, it was really it was really cool. Uh, we, we had a lot of other things that were uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, aimed aimed at the public, but uh, not necessarily for kids. And then we had, uh, so we had a film festival of, uh, uh, we have a global film festival that we sponsor every year uh, with a different theme each year. And so this year we did, obviously, Shakespeare. And uh, so that made sense. So we did Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of different, uh, some of these were not, Shakespeare, literally Shakespeare. They were like Shakespeare adaptations. So you've got uh, a really famous example uh, is Akira Kurosawa, a Japanese filmmaker who's made uh, made two films that were adaptations of Shakespeare plays set in medieval Japan. Um, and so we did one of those. Now we're, we're going to be showing another one this coming semester. Mm. Um but um, you've got. I think we did Throne of Blood this past this past uh, semester during during the exhibit, uh, which was an adaptation of um, a Macbeth, uh, but set in feudal Japan. Uh, it's very different. Obviously, it's not Shakespeare's text. Uh, it's this, you know, an adaptation of the story. So you see, you know, you see how how Shakespeare's influence uh, runs across. Uh, all cultural, you know, all 
different cultures. Um, that, if, I could, if I can interrupt real quickly I'm about sorry. that, um, no, no, if I if I could just step in because I I happen to love it's your podcast. Well, that's you know. true. I always apologize for doing it though. I don't know why. Um, but if uh, that is one of my favorite movies, actually, Throne of Blood, and, and I've taught it alongside when I've taught Macbeth a few times that I've done that. And oh. I, what I find interesting about and just kind of endlessly fascinating is that when we think of Shakespeare the language is really plays a prominent role in the way we conceive of Shakespeare. We talk all the time about the phrases that we use every day that come from Shakespeare and we don't even realize it. And so we tend to fixate on the language of Shakespeare when, uh, when we engage with that. But when you watch a movie like throne of blood, um, the language is completely effaced. The language is gone. Um, there's no Shakespearean language left in that movie. What you're left with is equally powerful, though. And, and I just find that to be something um, that's really interesting. I, I've already got on the burner. Someone uh, months ago has asked me to do a episode about Kurosawa, and, and, and this might kind of give me the motivation to pick that up because I think that, that that's uh, uh, you brought that up. And, and Ron, the uh, uh, King Lear adaptation is, is uh, another uh, a version of that, right? And so, yeah, I interrupted, though. Uh, go right ahead with the ancillary. Uh, well, it's, it's yeah, I mean, the, the a lot of the plots are not, I mean, none of these plots were Shakespeare's original plots. He would take the plots from other sources, whether they were historical uh, chronicles uh, or uh, other people's other playwrights uh, tales or you know um, so the plots were not really what made Shakespeare special although his version of them was you know always an improvement over the you know what he was taking it from and uh, he made the characters you know he gave those characters uh, a certain amount of depth I think that um, has 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 made these characters as memorable as they are, and as it's, um, but I mean, I remember I was I was talking to I think it was maybe my mom or my sister or something like that years ago. I was reading King Lear. I didn't read it in school, so I just was reading it because um, I, I thought, oh, this is an important play. I should be reading. I should read King Lear. <laughs> this is why you're my friend. And I started telling my 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 mom about the or my mom and my sister maybe about the plot, and they were really interested. They were sort of captivated. No interest really in Shakespeare, but they were captivated by the story. And uh, I mean, the stories are—they're very, very captivating stories. Um, and uh, you combine that with with Shakespeare's poetry, and and obviously, uh, you know, you, you you take away Shakespeare's poetry, you put in Akira Kurosawa's visual poetry. Yes. Uh, and you have something, you know, also very powerful in a different different way. The different, landscapes of Japan are, yeah, are part are, are poetic, right? The way he um, yeah. exhibits them, yeah. Um, and so, so other, you, other other uh, things that we did, yeah, um, uh, we had we had uh, uh, some theatrical performances by a group of students uh, that our uh, theater director Michael Swanson put together. Um, a group of six, I believe, student actors, um, and they were primarily acting out scenes and monologues from plays that were first published in the first folio, um, with the exception of the Hamlet to be or not to be speech. That was what the, the Folger, I'm sorry, what the folio will, was open to in right. the exhibit. Um, so we thought, well, we should, we should have somebody do the to be or not to be speech from Hamlet, but Hamlet wasn't uh, not first published in the, in the first folio. It would have been published in individual quartos, uh, individual sort of pamphlet kind of form. Um, so um, so that was really cool. And they played, we called it Pop-Up Shakespeare because they popped up around different areas of Elizabethtown College and like coffee houses and 
uh, in a restaurant and the, uh, they, they performed on campus. Um, and it was really, it was really uh, fun, I think, for the students uh, and for the public that got to see them. Some people obviously were going there with the intent of seeing them, but some people, you know, they would just sort of show up. Uh, we had a music recital. There were uh, students that sang. There had been many, many uh, musical settings of Shakespeare uh, songs from within Shakespeare's plays and then sonnets um, in classical, you know, opera, opera uh, set musical settings. Um, so there was a recital uh, of, of music uh, that our that student performers sang. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, we had student artists who who did side exhibits, uh, which which you saw, um, and those were really uh, interesting and different. Um, we had uh, we had a performer come from New York who was commissioned by the Folger, uh, Louis Batelli, uh, who did a one man show uh, around Hamlet uh, called The Gravedigger's Tale, mm. and that was really cool because that was that was something that was accessible to two families and kids and we had quite a few kids and it was difficult. I, I thought it was actually what I thought it was going to be was not exactly what it was. Uh, I thought it was going to be a sort of a watered down version of Hamlet where like, you know, maybe we'd be talking to the audience and explaining blah, blah, blah. but it was, ha it was Shakespeare. Right. Uh, you know, he was, he, there was no point where he was uh, really uh, explaining anything in, in modern uh, uh, English. And, um, but the, the kids that saw it loved it, and after the show, you know, the kids were going up to him and talking to him. So I could tell that he had made an impact, and and that they, you know, um, they they connected with it in some way, you know. Um, so that was really important. I mean, that's you know, you were asking what is the what is the uh, goal of of the exhibit? I mean, one of the goals is, is obviously to teach people and, and and about the history of the text and the importance of the text and. Uh, that, but it's also just to connect people uh, with Shakespeare and give people, you know, give give exposure to these things that you know uh, uh, people in the area they might not otherwise uh, get exposed to as much. And, and I guess it's important to ask why. Like, and so I uh, my kind of follow up question to that is. Like, why should people care about Shakespeare? I mean, I, I, and so I, I... Why should people care about any author? You know, I mean, <laughs> to me, uh, Shakespeare uh, is sort of the pinnacle of, of um, uh, poetry in, in English uh, in, in, in many respects. I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I mean, the plays are... Uh, I, it's not. I don't love all of his plays, uh, and I uh, actually had a, a class that did a project around Merchant of Venice, and I uh, they wanted to they were doing a documentary film, and they wanted to interview me to talk about my view of Merchant of Venice and anti-Semitism and Merchant of Venice. So I read Merchant of Venice right before we were about to do this, and that sort of not you know reading that sort of knocks Shakespeare a little bit off his pedestal for me, but. I thought uh, you were going to tell me that they had asked you to play Shylock, and I was like, "Oh dear!" No, oh, oh. oh yeah, no, this, is not, no, this is not. This is not that kind of documentary. There was no, there was no Shakespearean uh, performance involved. Uh, but uh, Shakespeare informs how we. I mean, there's some people that try to make really, really big claims for Shakespeare, like um, 
uh, Harold Bloom, who, who believed Shakespeare uh, invented, uh, you know, human, all of human culture, pretty right. much. Like you know, all of Western culture is. No one knew is, how to love before Shakespeare, right? Right, or like even being human. He's like Shakespeare is how we learned how to be human. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, you know, like that. That is that is a bardolator, uh, if there ever was one. But <laughs> but I certainly believe Shakespeare is enriching. It it it, it certainly. Like when I read Shakespeare, I I pay more attention to language, uh, and I'm I'm sort of like I, it's like it's like seeing somebody, uh, I don't know, it's like seeing a great magician, you know, do a magic trick, and uh, you know, like uh, you know, you're just sort of uh, amazed, and he's sort of a magician with words, and um, you know, seeing uh, how how amazing somebody can use the English language in a way to express uh, things that uh, everybody, you know, has experienced in some way, or, or if, they, if you haven't experienced it yet, you probably will. And, uh, you know, the, the, the speech that they have it open to is the to be or not to be speech, which uh, is, they always have it open to that because it's the most famous Shakespeare speech. And it's, the most famous Shakespeare speech for a reason, you know. I mean, it's uh, it's a very it's a very dark speech, obviously, uh, but there's there's a it touches a chord with people. This this uh, contemplating uh, of one's uh, uh, existence and uh, and uh, frustrations with with existence, and uh, you know, uh, he's contemplating suicide, and he's. Uh, you know, very, very extraordinarily depressed uh, over his his life circumstances and uh, his his frustrations and his uh, his own fear of, of of the afterlife and his fear of you know his sort of his sort of uh, his thoughts. Uh, they're just fascinating and just as a character, Hamlet. Like I, I, I can't imagine anybody uh, who could not be fascinated by Hamlet as a character. Um, and who could not in some way relate to that language and, and to its unbelievably eloquent expression of the sort of feelings that someone experiences when they're depressed. Um, I mean, I, 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 there's, no, there's no speech, I think, in the English language that captures uh, what that experience feels like, like, like Shakespeare does. So, um, so you ask, well, why, why do you want to be exposed to that? Well, that, that is the reason why. Yeah, and I mean, it's utterly universal, right? I mean, it's existentialist hundreds of years before existentialism, right? And, and so, and and, it, and it's a uh, uh, and it's a shared experience that you have just by being human, and uh, therefore, this is something that our current culture constantly goes to, either in explicit sort of remakes or versions of Shakespeare plays. Or something like Sons of Anarchy, which is clearly adapting Shakespearean themes and stories um, for uh, just a modern story that's not necessarily a literal adaptation of Shakespeare, right? right. This is something that permeates our not only our language, as we've talked about, but it, it permeates our kind of spiritual lives and even our cultural artifacts that even if someone doesn't like Shakespeare, doesn't like great art, they probably do binge watch things on Sha on Netflix that have been utterly immersed in Shakespeare, right? And so given them that sort of foundational um, uh, knowledge. I mean, this is one of the things that I try to get across when I teach something like this is that whether you like this or not, the people, the artists that you do like 
love this stuff and they've they've dealt with it and if you want to appreciate the art that you do like more this is one a great way to do it an essential way to do it and so i i think that what the folger library did by bringing this to every state every province like you say um in order to kind of um encourage a cultural engagement with that is a really wonderful thing um um how did it go uh the the now it's, it's gone now it ended in december uh, how how did it go went very well. Uh, we had uh, 1,230 visitors to the exhibit. And the reason uh, he I knows was... that, because he had a little clicker, um, and I, I watched him click it. That's so right. Was, yeah, yes. Right. We had, yeah, we were, we were we, they, the, the Folger definitely wanted us to be able to tell them how, how many people were there. We wanted to know that, obviously. Um, and so, yes, we were, we were keeping track of all our visitors. Uh, with a clicker, which you saw, so you know I'm not making it up. <laughs> and uh, we we kept track. We had over 600 people uh, attend our act, our events, and uh, we uh, you know we we had to we were required actually to do a certain amount of surveying uh, of our patrons, and uh, you know it was overwhelmingly positive feedback. Um, so yeah, I mean, and the people that I just sort of talked to and, and saw and interacted with. Uh, had a very positive, positive things to say. So yeah, so I was, I was, I was very pleased with how things went, and um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was a privilege for us to be able to uh, do this and, and and provide access to this for the public, and you know, put together programs and have our students have the opportunity to get involved and participate. And I had a student. There was a student that. Uh, who had never, who was, uh, she was a theater major, but she was like just starting out. And she was, uh, she was sort of interested in it. She'd heard about the fact that it was coming to the campus. And um, she was sort of interested in some way that she could get involved. And I said, well, you know, there's going to be a theater troupe that's going to be uh, put together in uh and a uh, small group of students, they're going to be acting out scenes from Shakespeare. And she was like, oh, you know, I've never done Shakespeare. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how that would go. You know, I've never, I've never done anything like that. And I said, well, you know, uh, the, that's why you do it. It's fun. You know, it, it, it'll be, it'll be a great experience for you. And uh, she's like, you know, how do I read it? And I said, well, you just, you, you try to read it in a way, you know, perform in a way that's sort of natural, as natural as you can make it. And um, you know, you, the director will, the, the theater director will help you. And, uh, so she auditioned for it and she was in it and, uh, she just had an amazing experience with it, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so it opened up, uh, I think something for her and I, I think it opened up, uh, uh, Shakespeare for other people as well. I hope I, you know, I hope, uh, so you, you don't always get the, obviously those, those inside track stories, but, um, yeah. yeah. I, one of the things that I, when I was, I was talking to you outside the exhibit after I went and saw it, I, I noticed people would come in and they would spend like three minutes in there and they'd come back out and you, and you knew that they just wanted to be in the presence of the book. Right. And I think that was cool enough. That was fine. Uh, they wanted to um, just sort of say that they saw this historical object and, and, and have experienced that, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But then I went, and when I was looking at the, the artwork that you had in the, the first floor of the library there, um, much of that was done by, I think, graphic design majors and in, in like in business communication classes or something like that, right? It was a, yeah, it was a communications class, people with different variety of majors. Yeah. Um, and so the interdisciplinarity of, of 
what you guys were able to do with this text on campus when you were able to um, uh, get other professors on campus to incorporate just the event into the curriculum and have people do um, work in their discipline inspired by Shakespeare. I think that that was, I mean, kind of like a, a perfect image of the liberal arts for me, like is um, how something like Shakespeare, and I guess in the same way for Folger, right? Um, uh, his love of Shakespeare was kind of nourished by his success in business and, and probably vice versa. And, and likewise, um, these folks, these students in communications and other majors were sort of, they had their kind of disciplines perfected by an engagement with this work of art. Uh, and I just thought it was a, it was kind of a really neat little image for me to, to witness. So. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I'm glad you're able to make it out Danny to, uh, to the exhibit and, uh, um, and check it out. And, uh, I was, I was sad that your, your kids did not make it out, but, <laughs> Sorry. but uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't like, like the great philosopher Mick Jagger once said, you know, can't always get what you want. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think he was the first one to say that. Yeah. Um, I, I, he'll probably but, sue uh, us for saying the, the line on. So yeah, that, that's, that, what I... that's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, you know, there there is the fortunately fair use. Yeah, that's true. Our fair use laws, and, and we didn't sing it. Did, I did. You yeah. know, we didn't sing it. And you did call him a great philosopher, which was, that was I, generous yeah. of you. Uh, but that's right. <laughs> yes, kissing, kissing uh, up to uh, Mick Jagger probably will not get me sued. We all do. By Mick Jagger. Um, <laughs> but um, another thing, just as I, I kind of uh, wrap this thing up, uh, I like for the episodes to sort of develop out of previous episodes a lot of what we talked about um we, in a recent episode with the historian john Fea at um, messiah college uh kind of near you uh yeah um, uh we talked about the value of the liberal arts right and so some of this discussion really does kind of revisit a lot of what he said during that um conversation but also i'm looking forward now um, based on our conversation, I would like to do something about philanthropy. I think that's an interesting concept I would like to maybe explore at some point, um, as well as the idea of collecting, right? And, and I think that both of those were kind of uh, the, the genesis I saw in this conversation with you here about this uh, Folger um, copy of the first folio here on tour. And so I want to thank you for that. Uh, and so maybe sometime down the road, you'll see some episodes on those things. So uh, any last thoughts, Josh? I have, I have, I'm, you've exhausted me of all thoughts, Danny. <laughs> you've wrung me dry of thoughts. Well, that's a first, I, I everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yes, you, you, you've left me speechless. I've, I've used all the words in my, uh, that I have. Um, all the words are gone. All right. You know, well. Like Shakespeare, I would need to create new ones <laughs> out of thin air, right? Yeah. Well, Josh Cohen, thanks again, uh, and well done. Uh, congratulations on a really Thank successful you. event. I was really proud of you, and, uh, and I was really, uh, really excited that you got to, to take the lead on that, and, uh, and you did a great job. It was a really excellent event. And thanks for coming on the show, the show and talking to me about it. Thank, thank you. It was a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Danny. All right. Take care.